Hello, it's Czech Tutor of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Byron Westbrook, an artist and composer based in Los Angeles. As per his site, he works with both music performance and installation formats with a focus on architectural qualities of sound and the potential for audio to generate visual and social spaces. Byron's new album, Mirror Views, recently came out on Ash International. And it's a record that for me exemplifies something that seems to be a preoccupation within Byron's work, which is this notion of liminality, I guess, or the space between disparate states. The record has many different means of manifesting this in terms of mirrors and their reflections and source objects and perhaps a ambiguity as to which is which. The idea of having faked listening states and compositional devices. The notion of overlapping and overlaying timelines. The record seems to hover in this non-state for its entire duration. It's quite a long record, but it's absolutely gorgeous. So you can head over to ashinternational.bandcamp.com to hear and purchase Mirror Views. You can also go to byronwestbrook.com for more information on Byron's work generally. And as always, you can go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more links and links to Byron's picks as well. One other thing I just want to mention here is that Attention Magazine and Crucial Listening specifically is now on coffee, accepting donations. The show has only a handful of outgoings. Um, I love doing the show. It won't have advertising ever. It will always be free and accessible to everyone. But if you want to donate to support the show a few quid, either one off for each month, then head over to coffee, that's ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening, and you can send a donation over there. As always, really appreciate you listening and sending in your thoughts. Okay, that's all for now. Please enjoy this one, I certainly did. This is Byron Westbrook on Crucial Listening. Hello, Byron. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi. Yes. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So you have picked three important albums, as all the guests do. Before we get to talking about those, I wanted to ask about your new record, Mirror Views, which came out very recently on Ash International. So yeah. from the text that accompanies the record, um, I understand that it was at least in part composed from audio elements of threshold variations which is an installation you did in 2017 as artist in, uh, artist in residence at Issue Project Room. And in fact, I think we touched on it in our interview back in 2017 as well. I'm intrigued because that's been you know, four years since that installation. What prompted you to revisit the installation and end up using it as a basis of, of the new record? Well, I had... When I made that installation, that was actually the middle of three installation projects that I did during that residency. And um, the first and third were more kind of social projects where it was about the um, audience interacting with each other and speaking in a room, which, which was something that I had, like environments that I created with sound and lighting. And for the middle one, 
uh, which was threshold variations, I wanted to do something that was more just really focused on music composition elements and really like highlight the deep listening aspect of things mm. and basically just create a space for deep listening and um, let that be the uh, the point in the residency where I would be rigorous about music composition aspects of what I do. So, so I spent a whole lot of time on that piece. And then when the installation had shown and was done, I made a mix of it that was 90 minutes long, actually. And then that has just been sitting because I haven't known uh, whether it would necessarily be a release or, or not. And except that it's work that uh, it really, in terms of the audio, was something that was rigorous and something that I had spent a lot of time developing. And so I think in the back of my mind, I hoped it could be a release. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that uh, I'd kind of been in back and forth conversation with Mike Harding, who's with Touch and Ash International, about doing something with them for a while. And he just happened to come to me at a time where he said, do you want to do a CD with us? It it just seemed, it just immediately clicked. I was like, oh, right. Okay, that's what to do with that piece. I just need to go back and revisit it. And I didn't tell him yes right away. I went back and listened to it <laughs> and realized that, okay, wait, there's a way to restructure this where the stuff that doesn't work, uh, th that only would work in the installation, I can take out. And then the aspects of it that will fly on a CD, uh, I can just leave in and maybe reorder things a little bit and uh, remix. And yeah, it felt, it basically just felt good, felt right. I did a remix of it uh, or a couple of remixes of it and there it is and you have it. Uh, an interesting thing about it also though is that it's too high fidelity, so many for like a cassette, um, and it, there's no way to really get this material on an LP record because the left and right speakers are out of phase with each other at, huh. a lot of the time, and it just can't translate the experience. And so both the long running time and that aspect were just perfect for a CD. What's interesting as well, I guess, is that you're transposing an installation work into something designed to be experienced in like a finite form. Uh, as opposed to an installation. I mean, I'm assuming with the installation, people were stepping in and out of it. Is that correct? While it kind of rolled on on either side of them. Yeah, people were coming in and out. Um, it was definitely something, the, the way that, and this was uh, uh, something that I had to consider just in general with my installation work. It, I wanted to create a space that people would want to spend time in and mm -hmm. would feel like they're, kind of committing to and so i think i i worked with the text a little bit to make it sound like something that would be a commitment and it was a mostly dark room uh where once you're in it's a dark room where you would have to sit on the floor the audience were all seated around it, it was actually a dance studio with mirrors all along the sides which is kind of part of the the title association but not all yeah, so it's something where once you, once someone would come in and sit down, it was so quiet. People weren't coming and going very quickly. So was that another challenge uh, to structure something that I suppose had for anyone picking up the record, like a definitive beginning and end point and a, a, a specific transit through time, at least compositionally? I suppose it can vary depending on how they're listening to it. But yeah. how did that work out? In terms of the the compositional arc, you say? Yeah, exactly. So, whereas the installation exists, I guess, as a state or a space where someone can walk in at, at any point, they don't necessarily have to be there for some beginning. Doing the recording, how did you find, yeah, as you say, you put it so much more succinctly, the narrative arc of the recording? How do you find putting that together? Yeah. I, this, this really, in a lot of ways, was a... Uh, a musical piece with an existing narrative arc that I made an installation style listening space for, if gotcha. that makes sense. So the beginning really is 
the beginning. The actually the first piece on the record, I've actually performed live a bunch of times, also as the first piece that I perform in a set. So right. it, it's something where, um, and other part, other aspects of it, I had never presented in a live performance situation because they're just playback of field recordings and um it's sort of like there's a it alternates between sections that are kind of more in a semi-performative music performance performance seeming space and things that uh where you need to draw the audience into that space of attention to have them experience the slower passages properly um if that makes any sense yeah totally um another phrase actually that really piqued my interest on the accompanying material was a reference to faked synthesizer binaural environments. Right. I was intrigued what you mean by faked in the context here. Yeah, there's, you know, there's a, I've done a lot of binaural recording with uh, just in-ear binaurals in the past. And I mean, I think one aspect of what that uh, what makes binaural recordings seem realistic is just capturing phase relationships. And I uh, have sort of a low-tech version in my synthesizer programming of phase displacement between speaker right. where I can simulate some of that head motion and what's actually happening in uh, I mean it's what you're hearing in uh, a lot of the what ASMR videos and things like that uh, but I've made a lot of just recordings using white noise and just or, or not necessarily white noise all kinds of noise and uh, synth programming that um, just sort of angle towards something that would imply an environment or a space and mm. i like that gray area a lot in terms of it not being clear whether it is something that's quote actual being documented uh versus something that is just fabricated entirely in terms of sound design but yeah fake the faked field recordings thing is just sort of a uh concept i've had in my head for some years and has just been something that i naturally arrived at and you've also got recordings on there that you made using the bukla 200 synthesizer at ems in stockholm right in yeah late 2016 i mean the bit actually that's referenced again on the text is really interesting i'm intrigued to hear about your memories of that residency and your experiences using that synthesizer yeah, that was fantastic. I mean, that <laughs> synth is just amazing. It's funny because I felt like I connected with the synthesizer immediately, even though it's this... I don't know if you've seen pictures of the M's booklet, but it's it's pretty yeah. huge. But it's a lot of, you know, the same oscillator, and it's actually much more simple than it uh, appears. And the, um, the esoteric modules, um, I didn't necessarily... I dove into them, but like what I'm what I'm using for uh, what you hear is is all just real basic oscillator noise filter, uh, some uh, frequency shifter, uh, which that was actually my favorite module on that bukla. But mm. um, coming back to the mirror aspect, you know, there were I mentioned the mirrors and the mirrors in the dance studio where we showed the installation. There was also the fact that every night I was going back. And when I was in Stockholm, every night I was going back to this boarding house where Ems had put me up. And um, somewhere early on, uh, I think I went to a concert and someone at the concert said, oh, you're doing a resident at Ems. Did they put you up in the haunted house? <laughs> and it's like, what? I don't. OK. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's a there's a ghost. You can see it in the mirror. Ugh. And and so I. um I don't know if I don't, maybe I've heard that like, if you don't believe you don't see it or something like that. I was, I had, I had this routine of, of, of coming into the apartment and turning on the light and looking in the mirror and being like, come on, where are you? Come on, I'm here. Um, but I, I, I feel like there was that, uh, I don't know, somehow that awareness of that maybe being in the back of my mind, I feel like is a, a, a thread of consistency 
in some way between the two two points in time where where, where sounds were developed for this. That was actually going to be my question as well, but I think you've done a fab jo- uh, job of answering it there, and I really love as well just talking to you in this intro how it's really exploded this title too. The work is really awesome. I've given it several listens already, and I'm really looking forward to my next one. There's so much to to pick apart here, so I will put a link to that release in the show notes for people to check out you definitely should um byron let's talk about your important records so i tend to start by asking how you thought about the word important when coming up with your list so was there a particular way that you interpreted important in order to come up with the three records that you did you know i thought about that a lot actually that was (laughs) something that i um because i i really kind of went uh, went through a lot of different records in my head when considering what to uh, to share here. Um, I think uh, I I tried to consider it in terms of on one hand, like what's important to me and maybe relates to the work that I'm doing to some degree, but maybe more important in a way of like what is, what is something that maybe people don't necessarily have as much familiarity with um and it might be interesting to sort of uh show in context uh and also just to show something about me and the eclecticism of my listening choices but um had i actually chosen the like my three favorite records they might be maybe more typical things cool well let's go with one of these records then which one do you want to talk about first byron let's talk about marianne first okay great so marianne amache sound characters making the third year so yeah tell me a bit about why this album's important to you so i i mean i really think that marianne i mean it seems like her uh the sort of general awareness of her is raised these days with the uh, book of her writings come out and a lot of the um uh productions of her work around but um i i just think she's like was massively ahead of her time and both in terms of uh conceptual approach to music composition and in terms of the actual sounds that came out of her work uh and it, it seems like there aren't a lot of great documents of her work. And I think that even this recording, uh, my understanding is that she wasn't particularly happy with this. She, uh, she really felt that her work couldn't exist on a recording. Right. But it's one of these cases where um, people say things like that, but then even the document that only shows, you know, 40 or 50% of what they intended can still be incredible in its own right and and i think that this uh it does capture uh just some really interesting ideas um and there's really not much else that's like it it's so Mm. it's such an unusual uh collection of works um and and just in terms of uh i guess things that i I would hope that people would pay more attention to in terms of uh, pushing music forward. And I think that that was her intention also. Can you remember how you first came into it? To Marianne? I in I can tell you a date. I believe it was <laughs> November 30th, 2006, ah. I believe. Um she she was perform this is going to sound really unusual she was uh performing at issue two nights at the old old issue project room it was their second space when it was in a grain silo um and i had just heard about her because i knew stefan cherapnin uh and i think he had done a performance with i first heard about her from him uh and she had done a performance co-build with him at roulette in like 2004 or 2005. So she was just, her name was on my radar, but this date, uh, November 
in November of 2006, uh, where she had two shows in a row. Somehow I, and again, this just is maybe too much information. I was on a plane to go to a wedding uh, and had a panic attack and got on that date of November 2006, had a panic attack and got off the plane and didn't go to the wedding and instead went to go that night Marianne was playing and I went with a friend to go see her at Issue Project Room and she performed these eartone pieces uh, and it was really hugely influential for me and I still, I don't know why I had the panic attack and got off of, or, and, or didn't get on that plane but mm. I'm really, really, really glad that, I, <laughs> that that is how it worked uh, because that's the only time I've ever seen her perform and it was just... Uh, you know, it it just changed the way I thought about things, um, and so I was familiar with her, familiar with her work from then on. Uh, got this CD. Uh, I sadly um, did not get to study with her uh, when I was in the Bard MFA program. I uh, got into the program shortly after she passed away but um her uh, her presence she had taught in that program for many many years and this was about 10 years ago that i did the program a little over 10 years but um yeah it, it was just you would have studio visits with uh uh painting professors who would listen to my my work and then say what they thought but they would also say what they would think marianne would have said wow. about it and so her she just had everyone was so uh her presence had just been so strong and i think her loss had been such a big loss for that music department there that um there was a sort of concerted effort to try to uh kind of keep that presence there and keep uh, uh so I heard a whole lot about her, I guess, is the what it comes down to. Going back to that show, I mean, if you can put your finger on it, I know it's not always easy to do this, but what was it about her performance that jolted you so much? Like, you know, can you, can you kind of articulate what that was that really drew you to it? I think there was the, I, I think it was successful in terms of what she generally was trying to do and that it was something where you know, my body was emanating sound. Right. Um, and it was set up in a way where she, they had encouraged everyone to walk around the space during the performance. Um, the, in, in this old, that old, uh, issue space, the speakers were on like hanging from the ceiling. Uh, there were, I think it was a 16 channel sound system that it was just all of these, uh, hanging speakers facing down and so not only was the sound interfacing with my my body and my ears sort of creating sound resonating with what she was broadcasting but i could walk around the space and change it oh so cool so there's this sort of audience agency aspect there which i've has been something i've been interested in for years and that was you know a place where I saw that presented very successfully and made a real impression on me. And sound characters is, so it's basically like a, a translation of, or excerpts rather from installations, right? Presented yeah. in a lot of them, I think in a much shorter duration than in their original setting. Is that right? Is is that the context yes. of sound characters? Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, that's, I think most, uh, I think most of those pieces yes and i've read a bit about you know this record i think in fact it's been about 10 years since i listened to this this work and i think it was just recommended to me without enough context for me to really probably listen to it properly as as i understand it's one that really requires speakers in order to have its full effect but right would you mind outlining the principle of you know I don't know, I don't know how much you can recollect off the, off the top of your head but the kind of effects that Marianne's music has and this idea of the third ear that occurs when this record is played over speakers it seems like from what i've read there there are two levels with her or two uh 
I guess like levels may be the right word. Um, she wants your body to resonate uh, and for there to be something that's not uh, based on auditory. It's She wants you to have an interface with the music that is, and I think the ear tones are actually just just one aspect of that. The ear tones are, I guess, for people who don't know, um, it's the proper term is called uh, autoacoustic emis- emissions. Mm. And um, it's where your ear actually is vibrating and creating its own sound where if you were to if like really be able to have the right sort of uh, physical equipment, you could put a microphone up to your ear and capture sound that was that it was making in resonance with uh, what's being played back. But she also wanted it to be experienced from uh, just sort of a full body level also. And but I think she also wanted there to be this other layer of uh, music that is happening that's not in the body and there being a matter of kind of hearing and experiencing the music playback externally through the vibration of the body. It's Mm. like this whole, uh, so that's where when I say layers, it's, and, and so I imagine it's hard to do that uh, with a, a record and i also from what i'd read i think uh just sort of the stereo speaker arrangement isn't really something that she particularly was fond of or thinking in terms of even hmm. and and if you listen to the to the record there's a lot of super hard panning going on where like what's on the left speaker uh, is very different than what's on the right speaker but it does seem like there's a theme throughout uh with the sound elements that are not the autoacoustic emission sounds uh there's a separate theme of just pulsating and kind of concentric pulsations uh, uh, at different frequencies and different layers of that um that i i get a sense that that's at a very high volume also intended to have a body experience right related and in terms of like the the tone of each of these pieces, I mean, you get such a broad array. Um, I feel like I wasn't able to listen to this record in a way that really enlivened a lot of those intended effects, which I suppose comes with having a two-year-old around 99% of the right. time and being in a semi-detached house. But the whole array of textures that, occurs across each of these pieces I think feels very interesting you start with that initial piece which has those rabid high tones and then sweeps into something very different but then I think it's the tower the second one right yeah feels like this almost very peripheral um, reverberations going on I mean are, are there specific pieces on this that you could bring to mind now which have particularly prominent effects on you that connect with you most strongly it's really the whole of it that i connect with but i mean the peace tower i mean i can talk about them individually but i mean the peace tower i think is the one that actually i think from an installation where i believe she was actually resonating sound through the structure of a building if i'm correct that oh, wow. i'm and it was something where uh, I'm not totally sure if it was a um, sort of transducer technology, uh, where you know, which is essentially what a speaker is. A speaker just is a magnet that vibrates a cone. But um, uh, a, a lot of sound artists use the speaker elements to vibrate um, actual, just like metals and things along those lines. Or um, and uh, I'm not sure if that's what she was doing, but supposedly it was. A, a building that was vibrating somehow or that the piece was broadcast through. I think there's a, mm. the, the, the bit that I'd read was something to the effect of her broadcasting the piece through the architecture was her terminology, but it just that synaptic Island, the 20 minute long excerpt, it's, it's also just really beautiful. It almost yeah. seems like a, a, like a, in terms of the harmonic elements, like it's not really melodic, 
like there's the things that are happening on sort of the top end that sounds like this digital noise that imply melodies and I love that like I love scenarios where something is implied so close to something that the listener ends up kind of completing it for themselves. Yes. Um yeah. And I think that's happening but it just it it's it has it has everything I would love about like a gas tune. Right. In, yeah. In it. Um it's got the beauty of that but then it also has this like grainy texture to it as well that is this this sort of strange pulsating um and then something that's really important to me about this record that happens in a number of places are these really odd uh volume shifts and choices of uh volume changes and that the 20 minute synaptic island piece it goes very very quiet for a long period of time where it's almost faded out entirely uh for like maybe four or five minutes yeah um and there's something about that and i mean i'm sure that that way of thinking comes from her having worked with cage but it's like you know no you if you set the volume to calibrate the piece in the room for as it is in the early part it's going to go below the threshold of sounds in the room at that point where you're going yes. to end up hearing it uh as a background and i think there's something kind of genius about that uh in terms of it being a home listening environment that would sort of it's it's like i was talking about with uh the installation earlier where it kind of captivates the audience and then the audience is sort of held captive to then have uh their sort of listening mind calibrated to be able to take in information that isn't on the recording Byron, let's go to your second important record now. Which one do you want to go for now? Ah, uh, gosh. Um, let's see. Let's let's do the Dylan one. <laughs> cool. Okay. Great. So, Planet Waves. Why is this album important to you? Um, this is. Uh, it's interesting because it's it's not my it's not my favorite Dylan record. I'm I'm a I I guess can just confess to being a kind of a Dylan head. Um, <laughs> I have spent a lot of time with a lot of his music, uh, at least up until about 1995. But I'm really fascinated with his misses, like places where he <laughs> where he doesn't really do the thing that he's uh, kind of expected to do and where things fall short i think it's just it's interesting about this it's this uh artist who's kind of defined a sort of iconic approach to songwriting and i think hearing their failures is really uh an interesting thing and that's not to say that Mm -hmm. i think that this record is a failure this record actually has my favorite bob dylan song and recording on it i think in the uh the broader scheme of kind of Dylan, the record after this uh, is blood on the tracks and everyone holds that record or a lot of people hold that record in such high regard that this record kind of gets lost in terms of the, uh, his catalog. And it's, it's just a strange record. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, um, remember how you first well i guess this is a two-part so maybe just a one-part actually how did you first discover dylan do you remember that um i mean he's sort of like a ubiquitous presence in some kind of way uh (laughs) i'm trying to remember yeah it's a good question because i i i think i got into dylan 
pretty heavily while I was studying at Bard about 10 years ago. And I think I'd listened to him some much further back, but I think in terms of it having a more interesting resonance with me uh, was... I'm trying to think of what the record that I was that I would have jumped on. I think it actually was that uh, I started listening to the Christian period records specifically for the reason uh, uh, first about 10, 10 years ago because of this interest in failure. And I think it was because while in grad school, the, the, um, the concept of mistakes not being mistakes and uh you know what what is artistic failure was something that was being thrown around a lot and i think i liked the idea that dylan's songs aren't really songs they're just it's from what i understand for the most part it's just that he types out lyrics on a piece of paper and then goes into a recording studio with a band and the band kind of just <laughs> makes the music <laughs> and it's so there's this it, it interestingly dealt with a lot of concepts that i was interested in in uh getting my mfa uh, questions of authorship you know who's who's really writing this music and yeah, I mean, I'm, I didn't pick one of the Christian records, but they're, um, they're, some of them are really bad in really interesting <laughs> ways. <laughs> like the rec- the recordings are terrible, um, and there might be a there might be a song that would have been a a massive, like iconic quote hit uh, had it been recorded in the '60s, um, but then with a very bad recording and slick production and it kind of being the playing being sort of overwrought, uh, it just gets lost. It's just interesting to see how recontextualizing things, uh, can just completely change the, uh, the perception of it. And this record is, it's almost like, like, like I think it was, uh, because it's, it's, the band Robbie Robertson and the band backing him. It's yes. there. It's like almost 10 years after the famous, uh, Dylan goes electric with the band incidents where, uh, but this actually almost feels like a band record with Dylan backing the band. Right. Yeah. And there do you, if it, I can, it comes across very differently depending on whether you're rating it as a Dylan record or a band record at least to me yeah unpack that for me a bit i don't know i mean as i said to you i dylan has just we've been on different tracks we've never really crossed paths maybe it will happen after this point and the band as well i know very little about so when you say the records uh, are received differently depending on how you perceive them how does that look like for you the band is very much it's it's kind of about a musicians it's about playing and feel and uh something that was um you know it's the the musical tropes of the that the time and that moment and uh kind of rating things in terms of musicianship you know it's like the 1960s rock combo i i feel like the uh-huh. The band and their playing is one of one of the kind of apex uh, points of uh, that sort of mode. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, you don't really look to Dylan for musicianship necessarily. <laughs> no one's rating him on his singing. No one's rating him on his <laughs> instrumental playing. He's not a very good guitar player at all he's notoriously like kind of goes off and out of time with the band and things like that it's not uh you're rating him more based on something that uh obviously it has to do with it has to do with lyrics but i think it's there still is like a it's not what you say but how you say it some kind of symbiosis between those things um and it's just there's something interesting about what would be considered not not inept, but just to make it simple, say bad singing. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Be 
expressive in a way that can can feel meaningful to a lot of people from reading about this record it you know it doesn't seem like that that was coming in tandem with a i don't give a fuck that's the take attitude either so i read a lot about forever young in this record right which sounded like one that he'd had knocking around for years and just couldn't get the right take for it and it appears in two versions on the record um yeah so clearly he was like he wanted it to be right like whatever that looked like um from his view yeah right and apparently i think i had uh read somewhere that the um the slow take of that song uh he almost didn't include after they had done what the the band thought was the most perfect take of it um like someone someone in like just like a visitor in the studio said oh you're going soft yeah and he and he declared oh we're not putting that on there um and it's really it's kind of one of the uh this is another instance of it being like this this is a falls into the super iconic villain song category but but it also is an example of the fact that like the the songs he doesn't really have an identity for these things in mind necessarily right and i can't stand the fast version of it it's not it's i actually it's rarely do i skip something when listening to a record i tend to listen to whole records but i i can't even listen to it oh wow uh it's really so you know (laughs) just for to making a point for it's it's more that uh it's just this example of how i feel like it it reveals it's like you know an album track on a major album release that is is there twice something that you would generally only see in some kind of extended collection or besides or something like that but it's just the um the the better take of it is the end of the first side at the least uh the lowest quality point of the record on the interior of the uh record and then the I i really don't know how to describe that take the it's uh more urgent seeming it just seems it's just a strange way to express the things that are expressed in the song yeah it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense um and it's interesting and that's that and maybe that's it's that's this is one of the reasons i included this but um but i also i think that there's like a weird rough rawness uh to this record in places that's um kind of uh below the surface it comes out above the surface in the song dirge but um you Mm. know like the the second tune which is this real relaxed feeling track is totally a suicide song yeah and then uh the there's the 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 third track is like almost him perfectly emulating a levon helm band song but he just can't hold the dylan out of it and goes into these like (laughs) lyrics about goddess and whatnot where um it just it's 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 almost cartoony but then somehow it's just interesting that but um i want to make sure i get to this the the track uh never say goodbye i think is really one of his most interesting moments period uh for me at least because it's just such a strange uh form right. um I, th- I think often i think like his way in the studio is not to tell the musicians to do anything he just starts playing the tune and everybody has to follow him <laughs> and if and the band the band uh robbie robertson etc we're just very very good at that but they're having some trouble a little bit on never say goodbye and it's it's i think it's an amazing song and also uh amazing that the recording of it is just it just never has ground it's it's one one chord four chord key change that is a destabilizing key change uh and just the way that it moves around harmonically and it just it just feels like every time they change somebody in the band doesn't totally catch it but that's on the final recording and uh 
I don't know. And it, it just seems like it's also moving uh, back and forth in terms of uh, expressing memory and the present from a lyrical standpoint. And there's something about that undertone of the ground not really existing harmonically that uh, it's the the mistakes make the whole thing work. And you mentioned actually that this album contains one of your favorite Dylan songs ever. Is it that one? It's that. It's that one. Yeah, yeah. That it's. Uh, I that that track is just really the standout. And I think I I don't think I I've known this record for over ten years, and I think it didn't really hit me until. A couple of years ago, it took many listens wow. to to be like, "Wow, okay, that is actually the powerful moment here." It it always seemed like something that wasn't a real song. It kind of because it just it's just this. It's like a couple of verses and then it fades out abruptly and never feels like it really gets started. But right. that's there's a there's a beauty to it, um, and I think that's. I guess what a, the the thing that I'm interested in with this is that. You know, there there are things people appreciate about Dylan in terms of like radio hits and him and things that influence popular culture. But I actually think that the more interesting stuff is uh, is like this, where it's just you know falling apart a little bit and uh, uh, has just really unusual tension between attempts to present it as music. Uh, and uh, and like what might be like a music composition aspect and uh, the sort of uh, lyrical tension. Yeah, that fraughtness is really wonderful. This is also one of those records that I saw it remarked that the songs just gradually started or qu- quite quickly actually started slipping off of the set list. And I always find those records so interesting because you don't always get an explicit explanation like for some reason as well i was reading back about metallica's saint anger record and the same (laughs) thing happened you know right where they just songs just started dropping off i mean we can all take a, a guess i suppose maybe they kind of read the room in terms of how the public generally saw that release but you're like what what discussions took place if they did that just meant that that record almost immediately just slipped out you know i, of I have to wonder then this is maybe like i i'm sure some of it is that these aren't audi- that most of, other than forever young probably they're not really audience hits on this also uh-huh. that maybe the recordings of the that so much of this is in the band performing it right uh, yeah that i mean like i said it's like dylan backing the band like the the it's that probably just really doesn't work if it's not the band but i also wonder you know it's just this is some like really intense time for dylan and everybody or not everybody but uh blood on the tracks is held in high regard as like a great breakup record but these are the same this is all the same period and these feel more angry it's like the uh, there's there's a sadness to blood on the tracks that is really out front and this is more like the anger stage of things and it's pretty heavy and i could imagine not wanting to perform these songs very much you also mentioned actually in your initial uh, explanation for why this this record is important that you kind of stopped tuning into what Dylan was doing around 1995. What happened there? You know, some of it is just is a saturation aspect right, of it. Yeah. But I I think I um I can only I'm trying to think. I'm not sure if I consciously even know it's it's that uh some of it may be just r- recording techniques and modern recording techniques not being particularly resonant you know it might be that i'm just looking f- i'm still looking for something that is the the older era 
Right. That like his his voice having changed is hard for me to hear and. Um, I mean, I st- even the 1995 record that people uh, that is often held in high regard, I'm not that super keen on. Right. Interesting. Like the, really the last one for me is the, the first Daniel Lenoir record, um, uh, which uh, for some reason is uh, escaping me the name of it. Um, gosh, it's something I know really well. But <laughs> anyway, it's from 87 and or so or maybe 89 and i think that's really the one where i'm like and and i i also i do love that record oh yeah and you said you had a favorite album as well that that differs from it's not planet waves which which is your absolute favorite oh i it just uh, most listened to is new morning gotcha. um, which is also an odd oddball record but um yeah N- new morning is uh it's just it's um it's one where his he actually does sing and the singing works and it's just again <laughs> a, a different sort of rating in the terms of like way of looking at it. it new morning is i just think of it as a nice record to listen to mm-hmm. um i re- i think i got into new morning you know I, now that i think about it um in terms of my revisiting Dylan, the question that you asked earlier, like how did I get like back into him or go deeper with it? I think part of it was the the grad school and, and interest in like the Christian phase failures. But I think I read somewhere that uh, Mark Hollis from Talk Talk uh, was obsessed with New Morning, and I um, I think I I followed a lot of threads of things that he. Uh, was interested in because his later records were really huge for me and Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah that that curiosity of what is it that's resonating with him sort of uh, sent me on that thread Byron, let's get to your final important record now. So what have you gone for? So, yeah, and that's Coltrane's uh, Sunship, which I guess was a posthumous record um, that Alice Coltrane helped uh, put together. Yeah. And why is this one important to you? Well, um, this is a record that I, when I got, I just was not into and I feel like some of the r- things that resonate with me the most are records that I listen to once and I'm like, oh, I just don't like this. Mm-hmm. And then come back to a- and am able to say, oh, wow, there's this is so interesting. And it, things that uh, where I have a reaction. I actually had that reaction with uh, one of those last Talk Talk records, too. Um, but uh, Sunship is just, it's just so... Uh, you can't listen to it with the expectations of it having what love Supre- a love supreme has right um it's it doesn't really have it barely has melody and it's really aggressive and it's a document of i think that the raw energy factor of the classic quartet yeah um and it's a really solid document of that energy and uh I guess in terms of things that interest me and in the music that I make in terms of thinking of like uh, texture specifically and uh, it, it really is able to do that with instruments in a, a way that I uh, really appreciate and is I find very moving. I mean, were you into Coltrane much prior to coming into Sunship? What was your experience like with him before getting into this record? Oh, so I, I, um, I actually studied jazz guitar when I was in high school. That's sort of one of my uh, kind of starting points. Right. And uh, I had, you know, transcribed the sax solo 
for the second movement of a love supreme is oh my, wow uh, my senior uh high school project uh and uh interestingly I, I i've spent a lot of time with just a few coltrane records Mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't know the whole catalog. I only I've only listened to Ascension once, and I need to get that one. Um, but uh, I, I I just had I had spent a lot of time uh, with his work and found it to be. Um, an, yeah, I mean I, I I don't know what to say other than I I really think that just the this. I kind of think Coltrane is one of the apexes of American culture. Right. Yeah. I, I don't, there's, there's not, uh, there's not much that eclipses what was done, uh, with them. So Sunship, I think I actually got this record when I was in high school and that's when I, uh, kind of put it aside and was like, I don't know if I can deal with this five minute bass solo at the end of <laughs> this. It just somehow that, that didn't work. And I think I, I'm really a purist in that I I I like to listen to the whole record and somehow that was off-putting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, my my roommate in New York in the early 2000s was obsessed with it and was playing it a lot. And I think I kind of it kind of came back to it a little bit then, and then uh, again a couple of years ago. It's just such a cathartic expression. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I also feel almost like the Dylan record. Like there's a maybe a circumstantial fraughtness in this one as well, in that it being like yeah. one of the last recordings that the quartet did. And then, yeah, you know, uh, Tyner. I think and, it's the second to last is what they is what it? I wow. read. That, um, that close to the brink, wow. Yeah, and that, and this one is unusual because it's not done with Van Gelder. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it it is a it is kind of a strange recording. I've wondered if if the McCoy Tyner piano microphone was <laughs> distorted or something, yeah. and they just took it out, and it's only like what what's there for his playing on this is just the room microphones. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's odd that his his. Uh, presence is i mean he obviously he plays through the whole thing and has some incredible moments but it's there's no it doesn't sound like there's a close mic on him yeah and and you hear i don't know if this is something i would be interested to know you someone is singing through his solos i don't know if you can really hear that if you listen really closely there's like uh and i'm assuming that that must be tyner just like singing along with what he's doing i'm not sure it, it's there's it's a it's a mystery but it's an interesting aspect it's it's a, it listen to the left speaker ah huh. wow that's so cool i know with um elvin at least actually i don't know that i seem to recall that he wasn't feeling like an affinity with where coltrane was heading and it's like I just don't know if I can I can go there with like <clears throat> the way that these you know that that he wants things to work rhythmically, um, but yeah, it does feel like a, a a band like right on the brink of just like play obviously just playing their faces off. Yeah, the end of the first side is just it really might be my one of my very favorite moments of Coltrane just the so the Coltrane solo in Amen near the end. Mm. There's just the just the like symbiosis between him and Elvin Jones is just like it's just yeah, kind of blazing and on fire and also collapsing at the same time. I feel like as well because you don't have the melodies in there and maybe this also being after they've been playing together for so long and obviously just talked about the fact that they could just start playing in a room which invites i suppose the the ability to strip away the melody if you can do that but i really get a sense of them as players on this one more so than like in most other coltrane i've heard of this quartet where it's like when you don't have a melodic structure to you know for them to be shunted around in particular shapes um 
Elvin's fills suddenly feel like very quintessentially Elvin. McCoy Tyner's stuff yeah. as well, it just feels like a, a real celebration of the way that he navigates the keys and like yeah there's something i i, I listened to the you know I, again this is one i listened to a couple of years back but i think you flagging it as a as a as an important album really made me give it a more intense appraisal and be like this just makes me absolutely adore this quartet um yeah 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 the playing is fantastic and i wish i mean i my harmonic analysis is probably not uh super spot on but everything always feels in an unresolved place. It's yeah. just fourths and tritones uh, throughout. And um, things are, you know, I guess there's the ascent track, but there's also, um, I guess, the second tune, Dearly Beloved, is just more of it's all d- descending. And things kind of never, never totally arrive. It's just all of this... Uh, I mean, now I'm like, I really appreciate the the Jimmy Garrison intro to Ascent, where it's he you you think that it's going to break out into a tune or a rhythm mm-hmm. so many times. It's like so many fake outs, um, <laughs> and but it just and it finally does do it, but not in necessarily the way that might be expected. Uh, but I really appreciate harmony that doesn't feel resolved i think that's something that's really important Mm -hmm. for me like for things it's the same uh maybe i just i just really like ambiguity i guess that that might be it might be that simple but um like just how we were talking about the field recordings and the fake field recordings and that i i like things to kind of exist in this hybrid space where it's not particularly clear what's what i also like that aspect when harmony is involved uh where it it's it's the uh feeling might not necessarily be dictated it's something that the listener can has to kind of dig into and discover for themselves Mm -hmm. and place themselves in and i think there's just there's so much space in this record for that i mean obviously there's a lot of uh kind of raw aggressive playing and that's that's consistent but the harmonic ambiguity and then also just uh really intense emotive exploration of that that is also still ambiguous i don't know it it's, yeah it there's just a lot in there totally i mean even the opening blast of the record it's like yeah. a little capsule of that right yeah, it's weird because it it feels like it starts on full and but it actually it it does build up even but it it it's uh yeah, I mean it's it's not a melody, it's just kind of a tritone uh, blast yeah. up front. Um but yeah, that it totally is kind of an encapsulation. I feel like there's another another one of the tunes has a really similar approach uh but I think in like a fourth or a sixth instead of the tritone where it yes. also i forget which one i think it's the first tune on the second side yeah it almost feels like a reference doesn't it to that to that initial that initial piece yeah um, yeah no and I, I was wrong it's the it's amen that does that it's <laughs> gotcha. a similar melody <laughs> Byron, one more question for you, which is, if you're wanting to listen to a record and give it a full appraisal or listen to it in an environment where you feel like you're going to get the most out of it, do you, do you have a specific place or a, a, a specific way that you like to listen in order to really dig into a record? Yeah, for the most part, I um, I just I have a turntable and stereo set up with uh speakers that i've had for 
my entire life. They were my dad's stereo speakers when I was growing up. Uh, and I have the speakers set apart and a place to sit where I'm in the middle. And, uh, yeah, I just, I listen to records that way. I'd sometimes I'd listen to the record while I'm doing something else. And sometimes I'll try to just sit and listen to the record and not do anything else. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, listening to music is really, it's gotta be one of my favorite things in life. And so having a nice way to do that, uh, is, uh, super important. Byron, thank you so much. It's been wicked talking about these three records and, um, and your own new album as well. I've had a great time speaking with you. Yeah, I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for having me. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.